Second Kings chapter 18 and 19 this morning, we're looking at the Old Testament about prayer. So as you do that and find your place, let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, I do thank you for bringing us here today, that we are able to have the word of God in our hand, that we're able to uh, be presented the scriptures, the word from the King of Kings. I pray that you would make us ready to receive it and then to put into practice what the word of God says so, Lord, we would be functioning members of your body. And I pray as we put those things into practice, we would reap not only the benefits of it and the body would reap the benefits of it, but, Lord, we would be in constant contact with you as we lift up our prayers before the throne of God with all our needs and petitions and intercessions. Bless us as we look at thy word today. Use it in the way you see fit, Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, be honored. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which I've been looking at, uh, it tells us there at least the that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So now we come to the place where they are breaking bread and they are meeting together corporately to be involved with prayer. And of course, doctrine, teaching, informs us about the nature of and the practice of prayer in order, in other words, it leads to being devoted to the prayers. The prayers are the foreseeable conclusion of true doctrine. So brethren, teaching or truth informs us how we are to approach God. And that is what prayer is all about. It was one uh, theologian who said our concern with the truth is an inevitable expression of our concern with God. Not to care about truth is not to care about God. To love God passionately is to love truth passionately. Being God-centered in life means being truth-driven in ministry. So just thinking about prayer... If you were to be given a self-examination on your prayer life, what would it reveal? For example, here are some questions. How would you categorize your prayer life right now? Would it be very satisfactory? Satisfactory? Satisfactory needing improvement? unsatisfactory or very unsatisfactory. Now, if you're honest with that, you can evaluate yourself. So on a scale of 1 to 10 or 0 to 10, with 10 being the highest rating, how important do you consider prayer in your Christian life? What would it be? 0, 5, 9, hopefully 10. Of course, 10 will definitely tell everybody else that you are serious because you're praying. On a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the highest rating, how important do you consider the scheduled public prayer meetings of our church? And of course, on a scale of 0 to 10, how important is prayer in your actual practice? Do you actually practice prayer? And if you do, when and where do you pray? In other words, what are the occasions, the times that you pray during the day? What are the locations that you pray in? Are those things taking place on a regular basis in your life? If they are, you will think prayer is important. But also, as I've been looking at in this passage of Scripture, prayer is important Also, when the church is gathered together, that we are praying together. So what changes 
What excuses need you, need, will you need to lay aside? What priorities will need to be adjusted as a result of this self-analysis in order to improve your prayer life and your presence in the public prayer meetings? Now, I said last time that one of the hindrances of the problem the public prayer meeting was the temptation to individualize what God has meant to be corporate. In other words, when someone concludes in their thinking that prayer is mainly a private matter. However, our text in Acts 2.42 is stressing a practice of prayer that is corporate. We are to pray together as a body. That's why the definite article is there in the Greek, which is the original language of the Word of God. The definite article focuses on the church's priority, that this was a priority for the church. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers the apostles' teaching. So the practice of corporate prayer became a significant part of worship in which the new believers were eagerly desiring to participate together. Now, not many would deny prayer is important, but practically speaking, many are atheists when it comes to prayer. We think we should do it but we don't seek God's face on normal days about everything, and we don't meet with other people and pray about these things. Acts chapter 3, in verse number 1, it says there, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So we see here that the disciples of Jesus still thought it important to be involved with scheduled times of prayer. In fact, if you do a study of prayer in the book of Acts, the historical book of Acts, which Luke is the author of, you'll find that no less than 29 or 21 times prayers in Acts are mainly corporate prayers, actually overwhelmingly corporate prayers. In fact, in Acts 4, verse 23, the church prays for boldness in the face of opposition. In Acts 6, 1 through 6, the church prays for the blessing of selected leaders. In Acts chapter 12, the church prays together for Peter's deliverance, which we looked at last week. In Acts 12, 12, Peter is delivered and comes to a prayer meeting that's been praying for his deliverance. In Acts 13, the church fasts and prays for God to multiply his work. And in Acts 16, 16, Paul Silas and Luke collectively go to a place of prayer. Paul prays together with the pastors as he gets ready to leave them in Acts 20, 36. So everywhere you go in the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned over and over and over again, and these prayers are inherently corporate. Whenever prayer is mentioned, it is over it overwhelmingly involves others. So in Acts, Christians regularly gathered for prayer. See, we we don't want we really don't want this kind of prayer to be absent from our body. Because this is the pattern for all Christians, all churches, all over the world. We cannot change these patterns. We ought to line up with them and submit to them 
because it is God's word. I mentioned last time we all need, all of us need to repent of this crippling sin because really when we don't pray, it really signifies we are in a some state of unbelief. We don't believe God can actually do things when we pray. And how do we know when, when God's people are truly repented? Well, we will definitely know that when we're taking out our secret weapon, like I said last week, as a congregation, seeking God's face together with our petitions and our intercessions and our supplications, as well as our praises and thanksgiving to God, when we do that, how will we know we repent? Because we're doing it. You can talk about prayer. That's one thing. But doing prayer is what we ought to be doing, right? You can say, desire that I, I think I should be doing this, but are you, are you changing your priorities and schedule around to actually do it? See, the Scripture still tells us prayer is effective. I said last week the, prayer, the effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, and it does accomplish much. So this Lord's Day, I would like you to read to you a passage of Scripture from the New Testament that drips with effective, the effectiveness of prayer in the church and then take a closer look at an Old Testament passage of Scripture which exemplifies the effectiveness of prayer. So at this point, let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, and then 9 to 12. And I'd just like to make some comments just a few comments about this passage. Because this passage really is talking about effective prayer. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, Paul says, I thank my God, verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6, for I am convinced, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Christ Jesus. So he is praising God and he is coming in and and showing them about the confidence he has that God saved you, now he will continue to do that until he's done with his sanctifying work and take you to heaven. And then notice down in verse number 9. What does he actually pray? And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That's what he prays for them. He's really praying for the sanctification that, listen, you guys are loving one another, but that's not enough. Your love has to abound. It has to overflow the cup because that's the kind of love God has. And if it's not happening, I'm praying that it does happen and that you would do it according to knowledge of the word of God and real, genuine spiritual discernment that you will say, Look at it and say, this is going on in my life. I desire to do this. This is God's will. This is the right thing to do. This is a very high priority for the church and for my life. I need this. If I don't have this, I am missing out on what the Holy Spirit of God wants to do in my life and church by bringing in my prayers before him with the rest of the people together. And then notice in verse 10, here's the result so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Really, he is praying for their continued holiness. That from the day they, as a baby, they trusted Christ, that they would be made holy the rest of their walk, putting one foot in front of the other, breathing in and out, the rest of their, however long they're going to live on this earth in the church, that they would be filled with righteousness, with good deeds that God wants to do through you. But it first came with the, the church praying for that. 
In other words, praying for our, our sanctification together. Are you praying for me? Are you, is the person sitting next to you praying for you that this would be a result in your life? But you know what? If we don't meet together for prayer, we would never know. That when we meet on prayer and uh, during prayer time, we're praying for all kinds of things. We're praying for the women who are pregnant and or the, the young mothers who are are just have young children and I want, and want to raise their kids. We're praying for people who are sick. We're praying for salvation of people. We're praying for we're offering up praises to the Lord. All kinds of things are going on in prayer. And when more of the church takes that seriously, I believe that more of what God desires for us becomes visible and becomes real and it becomes regular. In other words, in prayer, I expect things from God. I anticipate that when I pray, God's going to answer. See, I anticipate that. So if we're all doing that, then we are all going to be able to rejoice together and lift up the name of God together. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Second Kings. Second Kings in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at some things. We're going to be looking at what's going on with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern king of Judah. Second Kings, Kings chapter 18. And we're looking at several kings. We're looking at Hezekiah, which is the king of Judah and Jerusalem. And we're looking at Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria. Now, of course, Assyria was the nation that God raised up against God's people to take them into captivity because they didn't do something. All right, look, look what it says in verse number 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 12. It says, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commandment, commanded, they would neither listen nor do. Now, that's the northern kingdom. That's Israel. That's when the kingdom was split into two. You have north and you have south. Israel, now, we're going to see, is going to be taken by the Assyrians. God raised them up to do that very thing for this purpose. They were not obeying God, so God was chastising them. Now, at this particular point, nothing was happening to southern part of the kingdom, and that was Judah and Jerusalem, in which Hezekiah the king was king over. Now, I want you to look, just let's look at the character first of King Hezekiah. Right, for Second Kings chapter 18, let's read and look at the character of this king. Verse number 1 of Second Kings chapter 18. Now it came about in the year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was... Abai, and daughter Zechariah, the daughter of Zechariah, and did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Neshushtan. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So in other words, what else did he do in verse number 7? And the Lord was with him wherever he went, he prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him, 
He, de- he defeated the Philistines from as far as Gaza in, in its territory from Watchtower to 45 City. Fortified city. Now, all those things you see here that he was definitely a, a pretty good king, right? He was a king that was, his heart was for the Lord. He wanted to do the things that King David passed down as what a king ought to be. He was a good king. But this is what happened. Once he found out that the king of Assyria, Sennacherib came against the northern kingdom and took it. Assyria got a big head. And they said, okay, if if we took the northern kingdom, we're going to go down and we're going to take the southern kingdom too. Now notice what it says in verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and seized them. He sees some of the some of the part of Judah, but he did not see seize Jerusalem yet. That's where Hezekiah the king was. He was in Jerusalem. Verse fourteen it says, "Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and whatever you impose on me, I will bear.' Now that doesn't sound like King Hezekiah. Something's changed." You know what's changed? He's afraid. He's full of fear. Right? So what does he do? He does something that he would not do normally when he first started out. Look what he he does in verse 15. Hezekiah, well, in verse, uh, the king required of Hezekiah 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Look at verse 15. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the door of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, now this seems out of character. Why would he do this? This, not, this? this would not be the right thing to do. But you know what? That's what he does, and he does it because he is afraid. Why? Assyria is a very powerful nation. It has a tremendous army. It has chariots and horses and skilled people of warfare. And Israel did not have all those things. So they can be easily taken, and he knew that. So what happens is Sennacherib sends out his entourage to Hezekiah. And he sends them a message. And look at the message, and I want you to pick it up in chapter 18, verse 17. Here's the frightening words that comes to King Hezekiah. Verse number 17. Then the king of Assyria and Sentartan, Rabsaris, and Rabshak from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the fuller's field. Verse 18, when they called to the king Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the scribe and Joha and Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then notice in verse 19, then Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria. And this is what he says to him. What is this confidence you have? You say, but they are only empty words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? So he's asking him this. Listen, you say we have counsel and strength for war. Who are you relying on? Us compared to you? It's, it's an, you're not going to win, right? And so look what happens, verse 21. Now behold, 
You rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. So he's saying, oh, you're relying on Egypt. Egypt has all the armies and they're going to defend you. You're relying on them. And then notice in verse 22, but if you say you trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken down or taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Verse 22, now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses. And if you are able on your part to set riders on them, verse 24, how then can you repulse one official of at least of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horses. And then notice the verse number 25. Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Now he was right about that. God did raise up Assyria to go against his people. He already held judgment on northern Israel, right? And now King Hezekiah, part of Judah, is now being taken over by Assyria, and they're coming to Jerusalem, and he's getting so frightened by it, and these words are not encouraging words, they're frightening words. And so the Lord did raise up Assyria to come against God's people. And then notice in verse 26, Then Eliakim and the son of Hilkiah and and Shibna and Johai and Rabshakeh, said to Rabshakeh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak with us in, in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Now, he came to them, and the people, of course, sitting on the wall, listening also, hey, don't speak so they understand. Speak so you're just speaking to us, the, the king's, uh, you know, the king's uh, servants that we're going to go back and tell the king Hezekiah what you told us. And listen what Rabshakeh from Assyria says to him in verse 27. But Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me only to your master and to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? And listen what he says, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? That's pretty pretty strong language. That's frightening language. Because they had enough backing them, Assyria, about all their victories. This is a winning team here. Nobody came up against Assyria and won up until this day. They had a good record, and they were confident in their record. It's just like, you know, a, a sports team who has, you know, has won all their games, and now they're going to this final game, and they're, they're kind of cocky, right? They're bold. They have confidence in their past, but they don't realize maybe something about the other team, that maybe the other team is hungrier than them because they haven't won, right? That happens all the time. So in this particular case, he's trying to scare them. Then notice in verse 28, then Rapchaka stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Verse 30, Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen, verse 31, to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own sister until I come out to take you away to the land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. So he's saying to them, you know what he's he's handing, he's, He's putting the carrot out there. Listen, we're not. We're just going to come take you. We're going to take you back to our own land. You'll have houses. You'll have fig trees. You'll have all the best of our country. Just make a deal with us. 
tempting. Because if he did that, then the armies would not come against Jerusalem. At least that's what he thought. Look at verse number, the end of verse number 32. It says, but do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. That's where Assyria made a big mistake. Because they're no longer defying Hezekiah, king of Judah. They are defying the king of kings, the Lord of hosts. They are reviling him and reproaching him. They are mocking the living God. They are blaspheming his name and saying, God can't do this because God's already given you into my hand. Then notice in verse number 33. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of king of Assyria? Verse 34. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the guards of Sepharvium? Hena and Hava. Have they delivered Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people were silent because the king told them to. It says, and answered him, not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and uh, Shebna, and the scribe, and Joha, and Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So, if you and I were in that situation, I think we would be scared too. You know why? Because we're just human. We're just human, and we would be shaking in our boots. I mean, them tearing their clothes and then coming to King Hezekiah with that. See, that, that's, that's a, uh, a gesture of fear. It's a gesture also of, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So when Hezekiah was given a message by his very powerful adversary, the Assyrians, the message was meant to frighten his opponent. Did it work? Yes, it worked. Look at 2 Kings chapter 19 and notice it verse number 8 and 9. Because here's the second message from Sennacherib, king of Assyria. It says, verse number 8, Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, and he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say, when, when he heard them say concerning Terhakah, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight against us, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, look at verse number 10, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do you let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria? Behold, verse 11, you have heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my father destroyed deliver them, even Gozen and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Verse 13, what is the king of, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the cities of Sepharvium, of Hena and Iva? Where are they? You know what they are? They're destroyed. Why? Because the Assyrian Aryan destroyed them. I don't know about you, but at that particular point, what do you do? There's no way you're going to fight against Assyria and win. You are cornered. There is nowhere to go. 
Egypt's not going to help you because Egypt's not going to go against Assyria. You're alone. You're done. Except there's this one little man there. There's this one little man. You know his name? His name is Isaiah the prophet. Right? What does Isaiah the prophet say? Look what it says in verse 4 of 2 Kings chapter 19. Let me just say, you know what Isaiah prophet does? This is what he does. He suggests to King Hezekiah, maybe it's time to take out your secret weapon. Maybe it's time to take out that. Look what it says in verse 4. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that's left. Your little partial remnant that's there now, however many people that is, it's a small one because half of Judah's already taken by the Assyrians, and now they're just maybe just in Jerusalem. Hey, it's time to take out the weapon. Now, why would you take it out? If you think the odds are against you, why, why would you take that out? Obviously, Hezekiah wasn't thinking about taking it out because he was too frightened to do it. He was crippled in fear. He couldn't move. So Isaiah the prophet comes along and says, hey, got a suggestion for you. Take out the big guns. Well, why did he say that? You know why he said that? This is why he said it. Remember this, that your enemies may make an assessment of you and judge you rightly according to your strengths and your weaknesses and conclude it will be easy to defeat them. It will be easy to defeat her or him. See, but our enemies often assess wrongly where our help's coming from. And when they do that, that's when they're in trouble, and that's what prayer does. Now, I do want you to just flip over to Psalm 121, and I want you to notice verse number 1 and 2. It says this, Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. It says, A song of ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? Well, that's a question. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, that's why we ought to pray. Because our help comes from outside of us. It's not about how strong or weak we are. It's about who's for us. See, that's where we win the battles. And that's why prayer is so incredibly important because if we do not pray, we cannot win. We will stand frightened by everything the world throws at us, everything that comes up in the circumstances of our life, on our jobs, in our family. We'll be frightened. We won't be able to move until some little guy comes along and says, hey, what about prayer? What about prayer? How about that? You think that's going to work? Well, you won't think it's going to work if you don't know where your help's coming from. I don't have to depend upon the Egyptian army or some other great nation to come to my aid. All i got to know is where my help comes from. And the Bible says my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth who has authority over all things, and you know what? The Assyrian army and all its majesty and warfare ability is nothing to me. Nothing to me. All right? Back in 2 Kings, now I want you to see verse 5 and 6. Here are some of the benefits of effectual prayer. Here's the benefit of praying at least in this context. Number one, prayer brought the word of God, prayer brought 
God's prophet, designed to counterattack Rabshakeh's or Sennacherib's words and alleviate fear. Look what it says in verse 5 and 6. So Isaiah the prophet is actually bringing encouraging words to the people. It says in verse 5, So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah and said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid, because of the words that you have heard, with which the servant of the king of Syria have blasphemed me. So why shouldn't Hezekiah fear? Well, because the Lord of heaven's armies is on his side. Don't be afraid. I'm for you. See, that that is the encouraging words that come when we pray. God alleviates the fear. And then secondly, it brought him, Hezekiah, a word from God's prophet with a statement of hope. Look what it says in verse 7. Because he really brings an encouraging prophecy. It says, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, that's the king of Sennacherib, King Sennacherib, that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And then he says this, And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, did it happen yet? No. So God is laying before him not only the concept of faith, have faith in the prayer that you pray to me, and the hope for the future will come to pass. That is what he is saying to the the king and to the people. And so the the people now are hearing from the prophet because the prophet is speaking in behalf of God. And then... The next benefit is, you'll find in verse 14 to 20, it gave the opportunity to lay out his situation before God and implement the secret weapon of prayer. And God always does this. He gives us time. He's patient with us. He doesn't always expect us to get it right away. He knows that we're children sometimes in our maturity, He knows sometimes that we are sometimes stifled with fear for the future, fear about what's next, fear about just life itself, fear about growing old, fear about troubles in the world. There's fear that abounds in our culture. Our culture is a culture of fear. Everything is based on fear. You know, hey, listen, the statistics say that if if you don't have this security system, you know, 97% of people's houses get broken into. See, that's a motivation for fear, right? Hey, the stock market's going down. You better get these stocks because you know what? You can lose everything. That's fear. Everything's fear in our culture. You know why? Because the fear is a great motivator, right? Many things you and I have done because of fear. You know, we bought better cars because they had all the stuff in it just in case you get in an accident, right? Why did we do that? Because of fear. So fear makes you do things. But I want you to see in our text something very amazing. Verses 14 to 20. Look what Hezekiah does. This is not just a simple activity. He finally gets it, and Hezekiah uses the secret weapon, but notice how he does it. Verse 14 of 2 Kings 19. I want you to be there. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers, and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And notice he doesn't say, Lord, I'm in trouble. I need your help. Please just do something. He doesn't do that. Look what he does. Look how he prays. Verse number 15, he prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Do you see what he does? He adores God. He puts God in his rightful place. He knows who he's speaking to. 
he's no longer afraid. Because now his eyes are fixed on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what what brought him there? Prayer brought him there. Opening up the mouth before the Lord. That's what brought him there. Now look at verse 16. Here's his prayer. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Verse 17. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria's Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Verse 19, Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand and all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, our God, Look at verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Tell me that's not comforting. That is, that is the most comforting. That's awesome! And it's not because of any strength that anyone would have for them on the human level. It's only because he prayed and rolled his situation before God, gave God the glory, gave him the specifics, asked God to open up his ears and his eyes to the situation. And God says, um, through the prophet Isaiah, tell Hezekiah, I heard him and I'm going to answer him. You know what? And he's not going to have to lift a finger against Assyria. You know why? I have it under my control because I am God. And I am for my people. And no one is going to blaspheme my name. No one. No power, no nation is going to blaspheme my name and get away with it. I heard this once said that without persistent prayer, we have no offense in battle against evil. Individually, as churches, we are meant to invade and plunder the strongholds of Satan only by prayer. But here's the good part between what I just read and the end of chapter 9, you know what happens? Isaiah the prophet, I'm not going to read it all, but Isaiah the prophecy, the, uh, Isaiah the prophet gives a prophecy against the fall of Assyria with this flowery language about what God's going to do. But I want to see the end result. Because of prayer, the Lord answers Hezekiah. Look at verse number 32 of 2 Kings 19. It says, Therefore, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw it up a siege ramp against it. Verse 33, by the way that he came, by the way he shall return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. Notice what the Lord says. For my own sake. Hezekiah, you haven't been such a really good king. And you know what? You, fall, you have fallen drastically to what a king ought to be. Yes, you have prayed to me, but I'm going to deliver the city for my own sake. Because... It's always been my plan to do this. And then he says this, and for the sake of my servant David, because that's God's plan. Who's going to sit on the next throne in Israel? Jesus Christ, who's going to be in the line of David. right? So, so nobody can mess up God's plans. 
No nation, no power can do that. But then look at verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians and went. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. God did that. Verse 36, so Sennacherib, what, what could he do now? King of Assyria departed and returned home and lived in, at Nineveh. And it came about, he was as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword. That, he was, that's his two sons. His two sons killed him. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And his other son became, of course, king in the place. So, 185,000 didn't have to lift a finger, didn't have to get my bow ready, didn't have to get my sling ready. God did it in the night when everybody else was sleeping. His people were sleeping. They didn't know what was going on. And God said, listen, go down there and kill all of them. And that's what he did. And he sent King Sennacherib's running back with his tail between his legs and that his two sons were so infuriated by what happened, they killed him. That's the judgment of God. And you know what? All because they prayed and God answered. So that means... If we are not vigilant, we will be ensnared by fear and temptation. Our defense and our offense is an active, persistent, earnest, believing prayer force because that's what God wants. Regular and continued prayer shows where one's priorities are and concerns and passions are. It also shows whom we truly worship. I implore you, I implore you to remember prayer is always first. It is always the most you can do because it gets the ear of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how can we let our secret weapon just stay in the closet or collecting dust somewhere where nobody knows how to use it? No. Christians don't miss out. We, we shouldn't miss out on the greatest gift God's given us, and that's corporate prayer and prayer together. So I'm going to end it like this. Real Christians... Desire to be devoted to the prayers. That's what it says in sec. That's what it says in Acts chapter two, verse number forty-two. So here's the bottom line: We are to have a continuous inner channel of communication with God. Prayer is worship to the Lord, in which He, in which He deserves our adoration, coupled with a thankful heart that God hears us and will do what He says. And I pray that looking at the scripture will motivate us to be those kind of people. Brethren, let's pray together as a church. And if you haven't done that in the past, for whatever reason, it's time to put it aside. And come and let's pray, bring all your requests, and we'll lift them up before the Lord and trust and expect, and expect him to answer. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your kindness in giving us the word of God. I pray now, Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that we would be just aware of what the word of God has said this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we'd not take it lightly that maybe for the first time in our life we're going to take something 
very seriously as a spiritual blessing that has been given to us. Make us a praying church. And Lord, prepare our hearts now to partake of the elements of the Lord's table. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, this morning we are having the Lord's table, so remember uh, why should we partake in the Lord's table? Because it does declare our obedience to the Lord. Do this in remember of me. Also, it confirms in believers their true interest in Christ. It manifests a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. It declares that we're different in standing before God because in our God's family because we want to examine ourselves, we want to confess our sins, we want to be discerning of what's happening in our lives and with our relationships and our relationship with the Lord. We want to declare the great things God has done. We want to be thankful. We want to be joyful. We want to be glory-bound. We know we're glory-bound because of Christ. And it de- declares our belief in the New Testament and the New Covenant uh, that, of course, was ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, of course, it declares our belief in the physical death, the enfleshment of the Lord into the world, taking on a human body uh, and becoming a man who is to die on the cross as a sinless, perfect Lamb of God. And, of course, it declares our belief in the return of Christ. We're waiting for him to come back. Until then, we have to live for him, right? So let's just take a few minutes. Uh, Remember that the Lord's table is for those who are truly believers and who have uh, trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior and followed him in believer's baptism. So let's just take a few minutes and uh, prepare ourselves as the men come forward and take, uh, we'll take up our, um, our, the elements. Twenty-six. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's pray. For the bread that represents the body of Christ. Lord, we do um, appreciate the truth that we understand you had to come into this world as a man. You were virgin-born, so you were not a sinner, and you could not have been because you had to be the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. You had to fulfill all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And you became the sacrifice for sin who who knew no sin. So we can become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. And I pray as we partake of this element, we always remember that and give you praise for it. In Christ's name, amen.
hymn number 305, you meet at Calvary. King of my life, I crown thee now, I shall the glory. 